Good morning. It is a beautiful summer day outside. I feel bad for those of you who don't like heat, but I'm loving this. I'll tell you right now, it's, I'm Florida material. I used to laugh. At, you always hear people get older and they retire and move to Florida. Well, I'm one of them right now. I finally got there. Uh, today, we will be continuing in 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2. And uh, we'll be looking at just three verses today, verses 12 through 14. I couldn't help think as we were singing that last song that David led for us that one day the scripture says that we will stand face to face with the great I am. We will see him as he is. It says, for we will be like him. We will see him as he is. We'll actually look into the face of God. That's, and we won't have fear of punishment. We won't have a fear of that we're guilty. The only fear that we'll have is that reverent fear to look and be unbelievable that we can look His creatures into the face of Almighty God. That I look for that moment. I do. I look for that. Let's get the old specs out. Hopefully they won't fall apart again. Twice the lenses fell out. So Nick Camelloni's not here. He put it in the last time. So we're dead. If these fall apart, that's it. Okay. Anyway, before I start, I want to read these three verses just to get a feel of what's happening here. And then we'll look at the context and uh, where we're going today, hopefully. Verse 12, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write these things to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven, forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come. Lord, that you'd give me your words, not my opinions, but your word. I pray for those here listening, Lord, that you'd clear any, any areas that are blocking the truth from coming through. Lord, that we'd not only hear but it would fall on good soil that those would hear and accept it as the, and then that there would be a crop that would grow 30 or 60 or 100 times as you said, Jesus. So please bless this time, Lord. May it be fruitful and may it be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
It's almost strange, this little portion in this letter. We've been going along since the beginning. In the first chapter, John jumps right in to doctrine. The first thing he does, and if you recall why, because he's writing to a church that is under attack of heresies, floating false teachers, presenting false beliefs. The heresy we said, of, I won't go through it again, but docetism and Corinthianism. And those two attacking the very nature of Christ, who he is. And remember, at this time, there was no theology, in a sense, like we have it now. Uh, a systematic theology, all, you know, we kind of get everything together to organize the truths of God. Systematic theology doesn't squeeze into its into some kind of system, it's trying to take all the truths and put it together in a way that we can understand it and have some kind of understanding of all these eternal truths and absolute truths. And so John writes, and he dives right in about the nature of Christ. If you recall, he says, that which was from the beginning. He establishes right away that Jesus is the eternal God. He's God. And then he says, and that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched, he says. He's saying, he's also totally human. He's all God and all man. The incarnation. You know, God in man, he's saying. And then he tells why he wrote this. He says that our joy may be complete. Some of your versions may have that your joy may be complete. But what he's saying is, we want you to be in this fellowship of believers, to know Christ. And the supreme reason for the book is in chapter 5, verse 13. John makes it clear why he's writing this book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants the readers of this epistle to know that if they put their faith in Christ, they have, if they have believed, it is by faith that they are justified. It's through grace by faith in God. And he says that you have eternal life. Assurance, if we want to use theological you know, terms. He's giving them assurance. He's saying, you can know that you have eternal life. I wonder, I hope everyone here who has confessed Christ, who has, has truly repented and confessed Christ as Lord, that you have peace about that. That you know when the lights go out, they're coming right back on and you're going to be looking at Christ. I hope you have that peace. Because that's the peace of God that really surpasses. Because in spite of everything, I know what the future is. I know I'm going to spend eternity with God. And John says, I want you to know this. And think about it. These believers, things back then, again, you know, there, there isn't organized theology. There's... Heretical teachers everywhere. We went through that, like in Galatians, you know, false gospels everywhere. And John is trying to make it clear. Remember, John has authority. You know, he's just not some other guy 
He was one of the original 12 that walked with Christ for three years, 24-7, except for when they went out on a couple of quick missionary journeys. But he was with Jesus. You know, he's the one who put his head on Jesus' breast, you know, when they were at the Last Supper. He's the one who was close. He was in that inner circle. So there's power when he talks, and he's trying to let them know, you have eternal life. And he starts with doctrine, but he wants them to know this is the true doctrine. This is truth. And you notice he doesn't, he doesn't put a lot of flowery words in this, does he? John is pretty much, you know, he's, he's the apostle of love, but he's also one of the sons of thunder. Remember that. He didn't get the name son of thunder, he and his brother, because they were mild-mannered guys. You know, and John is strong. He's a strong guy. I always... I always hate those pictures of, of Jesus, you know, being this pale, effeminate, you know, little guy. He was a carpenter. He was a man. The apostles, these guys were fishermen. <laughs> you know, they were workers and stuff. You know, and I, we, we have to, you know, have a right perspective here. And John, his character comes out, and he's, he's adamant about this and strong. So he lays the doctrine of Christ in those first four verses. And then he goes on and he talks about the doctrine of sin. He talks about, he says, he says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He begins by laying out the holiness and purity of God. And he says that we also have to walk in that light. And if we're not walking in the light, he says, you're a liar. You know, you don't belong to him. He says, there can't be an inconsistency. This, so he lays down a doctrine of sin. Now he's laying down heavy stuff for these people. He's saying, first of all, this is who Jesus is. You've got to understand he's God, but he's man also. When you want, you know, God is holy and you need to be holy. You need to be walking in the light, he says. But then he switches over in chapter 2. He goes into moral, the, the moral issues and he goes into obedience. And he says also, you know, he says if you say, you know, you're, you're part of a fellowship with him, but you're not walking as he's walking. You're not walking like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. In, in chapter 15, he says, he says, the one who obeys me is the one who loves me. The one who loves me is the one who obeys me. And so John is, is making it clear to them. In fact, he says here, He says, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He's making it clear. You know, you can't, you can't speak one thing, I love Jesus, and on the other hand, you're living like the devil. You're living in the darkness. He says, that doesn't gel. It's not right. And then from there, he goes on to talk about love. That what is the main uh, characteristic it should be of a Christian. Love. Love for God. Love for others. Jesus said the two most important commandments, love God. The second is like it, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he, he lays these heavy things down on them. And now, you, know, you wonder if they're looking and saying, see, I wonder if I'm saved. You know, some of these things are heavy duty. To be, to be hearing and stuff. And I believe that's the context of these three little 
kind of strange verses put in here almost. You know, it is these uh, three couplets that are put together here. And to let you know, so you know where I'm going with this. He talks about children, he talks about young men, and he talks about fathers. He's talking about spiritual maturity, stages of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And we'll, we'll look at the words a little bit more there to, to analyze it. But So it's almost like John is saying, listen, I know I've said some heavy things to you here, but now I want you to know, because look at the first thing he says in verse 12. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. It's like he right away he wants them to know you've been forgiven. Now, he uses the word children here. But the word children he's using is a general term. It's the word he uses is technia, T-E-K-N-E-A. And it's a, it's the Greek word means born ones. It's a general term of if you think about it, we're all born ones here. Everybody here is a child. Everyone had to be birthed by a mother, and there was a father involved. Whether you knew them or not, we're somebody's child. And then think about it. As Christians, we're those who have been born again. We're the born ones also. In fact, in the Scriptures, many times, when that word technia is used for children, it's referring to Christians, the saved ones. So the first thing John does in verse 12 is address the whole church. No matter where you are spiritually, when he say, uses children, because he's going to use children again, but he's going to use a different word for that. He's going to use a young child is the next word that he's going to use in verse 13. But, so he's addressing the church overall, and he's saying, your sins have been forgiven. He wants them to know that you're forgiven. Don't think just because of these, these things I wrote to you, it doesn't mean your sins aren't forgiven. Your sins are forgiven if you have believed. And like I said, in the end, he says, I write these things to you, you know, who believe in the name, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you might know you have eternal life. He's trying to make it clear in this epistle, you're saved. But there's also criteria here so anyway I probably should say something about the idea of spiritual growth and maturity before we, we look at this let me just I'm not a rabbit hole this is this is pertains to this okay no stories uh, one thing we have to remember that spiritual growth spiritual maturity and another word for it is sanctification I mean, if we want to get to the theological end again, it's sanctification. It's, in fact, the, the word is progressive sanctification. You know, it's a process. It's a process. We all should be growing. If you think about it, it's abnormal not to grow, isn't it? When a baby is born, unless a baby has some type of uh, defective part in them, in their DNA, in their genes, it's going to grow. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, one of our daughters last year had a baby. And he's a year old now. The growth that has taken place in that year, not only physically, 
but you know, cognitively understands the understanding starting of things and starting to figure out little things with little blocks and things where they go and stuff. And that's the normal process of growth. And that should be the same thing spiritually. When we first come to Christ, we're babies. We basically, I, I think back to 1985 in August. When I was saved, I knew I was saved. The moment that Christ you know, came into my heart, I knew I was saved. But I knew so little about him. I didn't understand anything about theology. All I know is that Jesus died for my sins and I believed him. And I had a terrible weight of guilt of, of my sin. And it seemed that the moment I repented of that and put my faith in him, I, I can't describe that. And I still, that if, if there was nothing else in my spiritual experience, I know that moment something happened supernatural and I've never been the same. And I, I, I know that in the, my heart of hearts. It's not something that I say, I want to know it so badly that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hang on to it. No. I knew that night I put my head down on the pillow and I was a pressure cooker. 35 years old, I was a self-righteous pre pressure cooker. I put my head on the pillow and I went to sleep that night. And I knew that if the lights go out that night, I take my last breath, I know I'm with God. I know that peace. And apart from that, I couldn't tell you anything about theology or, you know, the doctrines of sin and Christology and, you know, salvation. I, I didn't understand those things. But so John is writing to you and he's saying, dear children, but there's, when we look at spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how long you're a Christian. Very sadly, somebody can be a Christian for 30 years and still be a spiritual baby. It doesn't mean you're a mature Christian because you've been in the church for a long time. It has nothing to do with time like that. It really doesn't. It has to do with a person growing in the Word and applying it to their lives and building that trust in God and that relationship to God ultimately like that and spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how much you know about the Bible either because I have known people that could could if I debated them about the Bible they'd ring circles around me and yet I'm afraid that they're still spiritual babies when it comes to the maturity level of their walk they're you know they're brilliant in their information but somehow that information hasn't caused transformation. There's no application of it. So they're, they're, you know, they're a walking encyclopedia of theology. But I'm not so sure where that love has grown in their hearts for Christ and others. And that's to me is one of the biggest signs, I'm sorry. But when I see someone, if they have a genuine love for God and I see them loving others, then I know that something has happened there. They're growing in Christ. Uh, the other thing is, wherever you are, if you're a babe in Christ, if you're a, a, a young man 
or a young woman. I don't want to leave you out in these. I've got to be very careful, especially today. I'm going to get in trouble. Remember that in that society, it was addressed to men at that time. Okay, so when I'm saying young men and women, it's, it's all of us here. Uh, but where you are has nothing to do with God's love for you either because God loves the babe in Christ as much as he loves the mature Christian. You know, that doesn't change your standing with God, where you stand with God. You know, Colossians uh, 2.10, I believe it is, where, you know, Paul says that we are complete in Christ. We're complete. Once you are a child of God, you're complete as far as your salvation with him. And he loves you. He loves you just as much as he loves the one who is a theological genius and is walking with him. So it has nothing to do with that either. So just keep a couple of those things in mind that maturity doesn't necessarily depend on those types of things. There's other things too we could talk about, but I'm trying to be sensitive here at the time. Uh, so anyway, he says, I write to you, dear children, I write to you in the church, you're saved, he says. And look what he says. You have been forgiven. Why? Because they put their faith in Jesus? Is is their salvation based upon their faith? Or is it based upon the work that Christ did? And we're, put, we're putting our faith in the work of Christ. It's not, when we say we're saved by faith, we're not saying my faith saved me. It's what Jesus did. And the faith is only to use uh, Aristotle's uh, word. It's, in, it's the instrumental cause causes that faith to come out but Christ did the work of the faith for us you know so we 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 have nothing to do with our salvation and then if I can go further the faith that we have is only because God gave it to us it's a gift from him as Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 you have been saved by grace through faith he says and this not of yourselves it is the gift of God he says, that faith you have, he says, don't think for a minute that you can get credit for that and say, well, uh, you know, there's this little island of righteousness in me and I said yes to Jesus. Uh-uh. Bible says you're totally depraved, that your heart is black. It hates God. There's no way you're going to come to him unless he does a work of grace in there to release that and where you can have faith. Now look when it, where uh, verse 13 if you look at verse 13, the third uh, line there, he says, again, I write to you, dear children. This time he uses the word padia or padia. And that word means young children. It's a different word. It's not the saved ones. It's not the, the uh, born ones. Now he's specifically talking to those who are babes in Christ, that their, their knowledge of God and their relationship with God is at a, a very, uh, can I say, infantile level almost. There. Whether, they've been in, whether they've been saved for two months or 20 years. He's addressing those who are at that. And if you think about a little child, that word, by the way, uh, padia, the word is the idea that you need training. Think about a little child. A little child needs to be trained. There's the idea of ignorance involved in it, where there's an, there's an ignorance involved. You're ignorant of things, and you need, to be, you need to be trained up. 
There was, the pedagogos was a teacher. That was the one who went, came alongside the little children and taught them so that they could learn. Think about a baby for a minute. If we, we're talking about this idea of, of, of little children. My uh, grandson, I mean, he'll pick up anything and he stuffs it in his mouth, no matter what it is. That's how he relates to things and his sensitivities right now, how he explores, the, the world is explored through his mouth. You know, you give him a toy, the first thing he does, oh, and he sticks it in his mouth like that. And, but he's ignorant of things that can hurt him. You know, it's one thing he has his own little toy, he does that. You know, if he gets a hold of a sharp object or something and stuff does that. So here John is, is writing, he's classifying those who need training. They're, they're, they don't have that knowledge yet, and they need training as far as that. Uh, and usually, if you think about the relationship between a child and its parent. It's, it's all basically emotional, isn't it? It's, it's relational. Everything is, re they only know one thing, you know, they, they have that that love of being close or that relation. And in a sense, aren't new Christians like that? When you're first saved, you're just like so filled with the joy of it. I always think of uh, is it Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, where Stephen the evangelist is going in the desert and he sees this chariot and on it is this, this Ethiopian man and he looks over and he sees he's reading Isaiah 53 and Stephen comes over and says, do you know who that's talking about? And the, the eunuch says, no, he says, unless somebody explains it to me, and he explains it to him, and before you know it, he believes. And he says, he says to Stephen, he says, is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? And Stephen says, no, and says, they go to the water, but do you remember what happens? When he, he dunks them under the water, and it says, and he came up rejoicing. You know, that's that spirit of a new belief. I remember I, I was on such a high when I, first, when I first came to Christ. It was just, you know, but it was all relational. I really didn't know that much about him. But I, it was all just that relational part, that emotional tie almost that it was to him. I believed him, but it was, it was, I was really being driven emotionally. And that's the way babies are, basically. Everything, you know, is just what they experience like that. And that's the level that we don't want to stay at. You know, if you right now are, are listening and you're thinking, hmm, you know, if you can relate to this, this should spur you on to say, I want to grow more. I want to grow up a little bit more. I want to mature. I want to develop. I don't want to stay like an infant. Well, let me move on. The... Uh, the second group of father, uh, the second group, I'm going to skip the, the father part because I want to go in the, the, the order of age almost here to make it a little more to give it easier to understand. If you notice in chapter, uh, verse 13, the second uh, verse there, he says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Referring to Satan, okay? So he says you've overcome the evil one. You've managed to resist temptations you're at that point now where you're not susceptible to just everything but you can start to resist you have more resistance there because you have that knowledge and you have 
you have the strength from being in Christ. And look down, if you go to 14, he, we're going to see why he was able to resist. He says in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Why has a person gone from being a young child or a little child to becoming strong. He says, the word of God lives in you. Remember what uh, David said? He said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the word of God that keeps us, gives us that, that barrier, that strength. It's there to tap into when we're tempted if the Word of God is living in our hearts. You know, uh, Psalm 1 says that the man who's blessed says he meditates on God's Lord day and night. He does. He delights. In fact, it says he delights in the law of God and meditates on his Lord day and night. The Word of God is always present around him there. You know, and lots of times we think of the head, we can also think of the heart. You know, they're very, very connected in the Bible like that. When you have something in your heart also or in your head. And so you think of the, the young man, it says, you're strong. The word of God lives in you. Does the word of God live in you? Do you are, are you at a place where you have enough scripture in your heart and in your mind where situations come up, you can resist those temptations. You can walk in the spirit and not flip over to walking in the flesh. You know, I always think in Galatians 15 and 16 when Paul says, so I, so I say, live in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. He says, you have a conflict within yourself. He says, you know, we struggle. But if you think about that, you, you, you can either walk in the Spirit, you know, you're meditating on the law of God. It's, it's the law of God is in your mind and in your heart, and you have that armor. Remember what Paul talked about in Ephesians 6? Put on the full armor of God. You have the sword of the Spirit, you know, and you have the shield of faith. You have, so you, you're strong. You have to be connected. And how are we connected to God? The book. The book. I, you know, it, we have to, it's almost like we have to hear the same message over and over because we don't do it. Enough, at least. We have to keep being, that's why Peter even said, I'm writing these things to you. I know you already know them, he says, but it's good to hear them again. You know, and it is to, to grab a hold of the Word of God. Think about it this way. I know I've said it before and I can be redundant with this. Don't think of it as, I have to read my Bible today. No. I have to meet with God. This is meeting with God. These are the words of God. This is how God communicates to us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Bible. And that's how he talks to us. You know, if you don't, I can remember, I can remember trying to read the Bible before I was a Christian. 
It was ridiculous. I'm reading this and I'm going, oh. <laughs> I'd, I'd try to spend a half hour reading it. It didn't mean anything. I didn't have the Holy Spirit in me. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of the Word and He applies it to us. But we got to do it. We have to do it. You know, Nike, just do it. Do it. <laughs> like James says, you know, don't talk about it, do it. And I say this for myself too, because no matter how much I spend in the Scripture, I say, oh, I could have spent a little more time today, you know, but I wanted to kick back a little bit and just goof off. And there's nothing, we need rest too and stuff. Is it good? There's a place for it, but I know sometimes I should have spent, I should have gotten alone with God here. Now, I always remember, there was a young man, he was in his 20s, late 20s probably, and it really troubled me because when I saw him, I hadn't seen him for a while. And I said, how you doing? And he said, eh, not that good. And his comment was, I got I to gotta start reading again. And the, the impression I got from that, what I heard him saying is, it's not a matter of meeting with God. It's if I just open up the Bible and start reading it, something magical happens. You know, it's not magic. It's relationship. The Bible is how God relates to us, how he talks to us. Hebrews, I know I quote it all the time, but 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. You know, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's God talking to us through the Holy Spirit. He's talking to our hearts. But these young men, the word of God lives in you, he says. The reason that you have been able, he says, to overcome the evil one is because the word of God is in your heart. You have that power. That's power. I remember about six months after I was saved, I had certain things. Now remember, at 35 years old, the baggage you bring in. That's the one thing when you come to Christ later in your life, boy, do you have suitcases filled. You know, it's like I, I could have had like, well, you know, you go to the hotel and they have one of those racks and you put them on and you're wheeling them. You know, I could have had a couple, could have had like a whole train behind me going there. And I remember there was one issue in my life and I was struggling with it. Terrible. And I took a hold of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And I'm telling you for a month or two, I must have said that verse 50 times a day because I was struggling with something. And I, I said, no, I can't. Lord, you know, it's a, and it, just even being a comfort says, no temptation to seize you except what is common to man. I said, okay, um, you know, no different than anybody else here with this. And I'm going on and on. You know, it's con And I'm telling you, it made a difference. It gave me strength. I had that word of God in me to fight off the evil one. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to comment about this for a minute too. And I, I am going down a rabbit hole. Okay. It's, it's, uh, listen, if Bugs Bunny appears, then you know I've really overdone it. Okay. It's like, it's, but anyway, uh, forgot what I was going to say. Okay, I won't say it then. There, that's a, you're going to get your way. I won't say it. Okay, that's it. <laughs> okay. Uh, when, oh, it almost came. I lost it again. Okay, that's, I've lost it, let me tell you, many times. Okay, anyway, let's go on 
Let's go on to fathers, okay? Now, the progression so far, he talks about young children, okay? The padia, the padia, padedi, however it is. My Greek is, is not much better than my English, in fact. So he, uh, he goes on about, he talks about them that there's an ignorance. They need, they need to learn, to grow. Then he talks about young men. He says they have the word of God in them. They're strong. They're resisting the devil. That's what I wanted to say. When it comes to the world, the flesh, and the devil, my biggest struggle is the flesh. We give Satan much too credit. Much, much, much too credit. Always, oh, the devil was really this and that. Most of the time I find it's the battle of the flesh. I don't need help. Doesn't James say that in 114? You know, he talks about uh, where, uh, what does James talk about? <laughs> oh, he says, uh, you know, do not say, when, you, when tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. You know, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but what? Each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. He says, then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and then sin gives birth to death. It's our own evil desires. That's the biggest battle within us. And that's why you have the word of God. It's going to you know, counteract that. But the, the devil is not our biggest battle. It's ourselves. You know, we're dealing with the, the, our own sinful, selfish desires that we still want to hold on to and that we love more than God. And that's what it is. And I know people don't like that sometimes when I say that. But we sin because we love our sin. And at that moment, we literally hate God. We want nothing to, we are like little, an atheist at that point. If we choose sin, we're saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. Just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. You know, and it's, that's, I wish we would remember that because we should be grieved by our sin. Sin should break our hearts because we're rejecting God when we sin. That, I mean, we, we try to, you know, oh, even a whole society, you know, somebody's doing something, they go, oh, you little devil. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, yeah. That's not, when people do that, that's not cute. You know, it's really not. We should never, we should never laugh off sin, right? And people have a tendency to do that. It's not funny, or, oh, I was so bad, you know. No, it's not bad. You're so sinful, you know. Repent. Get it right with God. Okay. If I can remember, we're at fathers now. Okay. Uh, and we're going to wrap it up with fathers. Uh, fathers, he's talking about the spiritually mature. But... You know, there's something, it's almost like a cycle that goes around for the children. Their relationship with God is, is more on an emotional level, that first relational, that shallow, it's shallow because they don't know God that well, but it's, 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 a rela it's more just that connection to God. The young men then start to grow in the Word of God they learn theology. They learn doctrine. They learn of God. They're starting to know who this God is. But the fathers, it almost goes back to 
It goes back to a relationship, but a deep relationship with God. They have all the theology, but it's to know Him. It's not just for the knowledge. It's the knowledge to know Him. And I like he says, he says, uh, you have known him from who is from the beginning. They know the eternal God. It's almost the more, the closer you get to God through, you know, time and knowledge of really getting to know the person of God, of that deep relationship. I think of marriage. You know, when you're first married, it's really on the emotional level there. You know, there's the love is you think you're madly in love, but it's really, it's very surfacy. And then as the years go by, you get to know that person. And that's when you really start to love them. Because you learn who they really are. And that's where love becomes between a husband and a wife. So deep and so beautiful. You know, and it, the romance gets better. It should. The, the longer we're married, the romance should also get better because you're not only loving this person for, you know, the, the outward person, but you're loving your best friend now. You have that deep connection with that person of love. And that's kind of, I picture with the fathers here when he's saying fathers. He's talking about those who have that knowledge of God and they love him so much at that point that it becomes a worship. It really, worship gets deep. That's the deeper you know God. You know what theology should always lead to? Worship. The more we know who God is, it should blow us away. The more I learn about him, it should be like, wow, oh man, I want to fall down and worship him. You know, that's, you know, and that's, I believe, when he gets to fathers, he's talking about those who have made that cycle where the relationship is not only on that surface level and the knowledge is there, but it's actually growing so deep with God that they know him in a way that is, it's, it's worship. It just becomes a worshipful type of relationship there. I would like to go on, but I think I'm going to end with this. Uh, John here is trying to uh, encourage this church he's writing to that the requirements sometimes seem tough, but no matter where you are, it doesn't mean you're not saved. He, he, like I said, he lays down heavy doctrine and moral issues. And then he writes this to tell them, it's, it's all of you. You're all saved. God loves you the same. Your standing is with Christ. He says, whether you're a baby, whether you're a youngster, a young man, or whether you're a father, where you've gotten to that place where you have this deep love and worship with God. He says, you're still saved. He says, but... I want to encourage us to grow. I don't like, you know, you see people sometimes, adults, outside of spiritual things. You have, I, I've, worked with some, I've worked with some people who were very immature. 
I mean, you know, the kind of person where whenever they're asked to do something, I always picture the boss says, listen, would you mind going over here and doing this? Oh, man, I got to do this now. I get... <laughs> you know, that to me is an immature person. And spiritually, we can be the same way, you know, when it comes to spiritual life. We don't want to be a baby. We don't want to act like a baby. I don't want to act like a young man, you know. Sometimes it seems to be nice to be a little younger, but, uh, you know, spiritually I'm talking about, I, uh, I don't want to be a young man. I, w- I want to be a father. I want to be a mature believer who really loves and worships Christ. And I hope you do too. And I believe you do. You know, and, and when I'm talking up here, have I obtained that? Absolutely not. Paul even says that, do you remember? He talks about spiritual attainment. He says, not that I have already attained that. You know, but what is Paul's goal? He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? It's to be like Christ, ultimately. That's the prize. I'm going heavenward. What is the final prize? It's to be sinless, to be like Jesus. That's, that's, that's where we're moving to. Like that, Paul said, I want to know Christ. And that's where spiritual growth is all about. It's wanting to know Christ. Let's pray. God. Lord, thank you for the words that you've given us. You just haven't saved us and thrown us out into the world, but you've given us the very mind of you, Lord, and your thoughts, Lord, in the Bible. And what what you, you look for us, Lord, to be and do. Lord, you've given us direction. You've given us the Holy Spirit, Lord. We have no excuses, Lord, for wanting to be children when we should be spiritual adults. Lord, forgive us for the times, Lord, that we don't seek to know you better. I pray you'd give us the, the desire, Lord, to want to grow in you and grow in mat- maturity so, Lord, that we can not only focus upon ourselves and our own spiritual walk, but we can love our brothers and sisters sacrificially, Lord, by ministering to each other in the name of Christ, in the love of Christ. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.